The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is award-winning investigative reporter Greg O'Brien. His new book is On Pluto, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's. Um, As many of you know, but some of you don't, Alzheimer's disease is not a normal part of aging and worsens over time. Uh, Without a cure or a preventative in the next 15 years, Alzheimer's is expected to exceed heart disease and cancer as the leading cause of death. Um, Greg was diagnosed with Alzheimer at the age of 59. I believe he's 64 years old now. We'll have to ask him that. But uh, he's an investigative journalist. He decided to write an honest, and this has been described as an honest and naked account of living with Alzheimer's. Not dying with it, but living with it. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Greg. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I think first I want to just ask you what the title means, because it's obviously it's very significant to you as a journalist on Pluto. What does on Pluto mean? Sure. Um, You know, I I was an investigative reporter, political reporter, a good part of my life, and I still write. And in my early years, as an investigative reporter in my late 20s at the Arizona Republic, was writing about organized crime and the mafia. And uh, when I talked to uh, go off record with my sources, uh, I told them that I was going to take them to uh, a place where no one heard what they said and everything stayed there. And I was fascinated at the time with the planet Pluto. So I said, I'm going to take you out to Pluto. Then years later, uh, in... Uh, um, you know, with my friends and social situations, as all of us do, and we go out and talk about the unmentionables of life, my buddies would say, are you taking us out to Pluto? And I would say, yes, we are. And um, in Alzheimer's, uh, it's a 24-7 fight, and and we'll talk about that as your show goes on. But that there are times when you drift out. Uh, It's called the Alzheimer's haze. And I had to invent a place that I was comfortable with, and so I called it Pluto. And uh, just like my mother and grandfather who died of Alzheimer's, there'll be a day when I don't come back from Pluto. Well, right now, you are here with us. and or, um, or you're on Pluto with me. So I'm, I'm on Pluto with you, exactly. We are on Pluto with you. So maybe we just, let's be really clear, should we, for the, uh, our listeners, like the, death, the difference between Alzheimer's and just the normal aging process, uh, you know, of sh- short-term memory loss, I mean, things that just happen as a result of, of getting older, but Alzheimer's is not that, and it's different, and you had different symptoms, which obviously made sure. Yeah. What, what, what I always ask when I interview, it, it, 30% of my short-term memory can be gone in 30 seconds. So if I start to take you in a place where it wasn't what you're asking, please reel me back in. I'm okay with that, okay? So, okay. so you're in charge here. Uh, but uh, what, what um, I, you know, I, I tell people is that 
there, there's a general perception of Alzheimer's as just the end stage. When uh, and and that's a real stage. It's it's a horrific stage where you're in a nursing home and you'd have no idea who you are, and you know, a month or two or three or five, uh, you'll you'll be dead. And and people look at that and they say, well, the person's 90 years old; they're going to die someday, and that's too bad. But that happens. And um, but that's just the final stage. Alzheimer's uh, and check me with the doctors uh, um, in Boston and, and, and Stanford around the country. It it can start uh, five, ten years before it's diagnosed. It can take 20 years to run its course. Uh, it's a death in slow motion. Uh, it's like having a sliver of your brain shaved every day. And um, and there's no cure. Uh, you, 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 you can't remove a brain. Um, in the early stages, as it was for my mother, uh, if, if, if you're blessed with what some doctors call a cognitive reserve, which is a, an extra tank of inherited intellect, um, which is a blessing from my parents, it's not having anything to do with me, uh, you're able to carry it out longer. But, but it's like a reserve tank in a, in a, in a boat, uh, a reserve fuel tank. When that tank goes dry, you go dry. And, and uh, my mother was able to talk and communicate, but... She lost function. Let's suppose, suppose we say the left side of the brain versus the right side. So today, right now, whereas I can talk with you, but but it, there are times when you know my brain, I say, is, is, is like an iPhone. It's a sophisticated device, but it has a short-term battery. Um, it pocket dials, it disconnects, and it gets lost very easily. And but sixty uh, percent, as I said before, my short-term memory now can be gone in thirty seconds. Uh, I don't recognize. I, I don't generally recognize um, people that I, I've known all my life, including my wife, uh, Mary Catherine. Uh, after church two weeks ago, um, I was in in a coffee shop having coffee and writing, and she came in. I didn't know who she was. Um, I don't recognize. And, so, and Greg, so when she walks in and it's your wife, and you look at her, and what's the feeling like? You you do you look at her wondering who she is? Do you go in the you know, recesses of your mind, like trying to yeah. figure it out, or what happens? What's the well, process? The, the, fir- the first thing is, and it's different with everyone, um, as it's been said about um, Alzheimer's, it's, it's like a snowflake. There are no two patterns that are the same. And um, in this particular case, she walked in. I didn't know who she was. And then uh, I recognized that that was a um, person of importance. And it wasn't until uh, moments later I recognized who it was. And, and uh, I'm, an, I'm 64, an old school guy, and we have everything digitally, but just to draw a word picture, I picture in my mind the old Rolodex where we put our card files in, and I'm flipping through that Rolodex in my mind so, you know, you can hear and, and try to figure out who's this person, who's this person. But and, your and wife, like, Mary Catherine, like that's in a public setting, but say like, if you're at home and you don't recognize her, or is there something like that she can do to help you recognize her? You know, as well that people prompt me right now and they tell me who they are. Uh, with my wife, it's it's very disconcerting. So I try not to let her know that I don't know, if, if that makes sense to you. And and I think people in Alzheimer's hide a lot of things, and 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 it's it's. Um, it's just something that, that uh, you want to go away, but it's not going to go away. 
another good example, um, uh, over the weekend, I, I ran into uh, a woman I've known uh, most of my adult life. I've been a mentor. She's in journalism. And I know her parents, you know, very close friends. And she came, she were in a setting uh, where they, they, she was with her parents, but I didn't see them. She came up, she gave me a big kiss, a big hug, and was hugging me. And I didn't know who she was. And I've known this person all my life. And finally, I had to say, look, I, I feel terrible, but I don't know who you are. And then uh, when we talked, and she understood, she knew the, about the disease. And then I talked to her father, and I started crying. I've known her father as far as one of my best friends. And I, and I said, this really sucks. I, I, I did not know who she was. And I, I, I've described Alzheimer's, again, as a word picture. It's like a plug in a loose socket. And so uh, imagine yourself, uh, you want to read a nice book on the weekend, and, and you're in your house, and, and you're in a nice, comfortable sofa chair and next to a light to read, and the light starts to blink. You know, we've all been there, and, and um, so you, you get up and you push the plug back in, and then it blinks again because it's starting to fall out, and, and then you do it again and again, and now you're starting to get frustrated, and pretty soon over time, the plug falls out because it's so loose. And um, you get up and you push the plug back in and it falls out again. And, and pretty soon the plug is so loose, uh, it won't stay in the socket and the lights go dead forever. And that's, um, in layman's terms, kind of what Alzheimer's is. Yeah, that's the course of Alzheimer's. But as you're describing it, I'm thinking it has to be exhausting for you. And uh, just so... Well, it is. I mean, it, 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 you know, we're talking about the symptoms... There are times when I don't recognize uh, where I am in familiar places. Now, I'm not driving as much anymore, so I know you and your viewers are going to all upset. I have my son drive me as much as possible. But a year or so ago, I'm driving back. I live on Cape Cod. I'm driving back from Boston, an area. I've been a journalist in Boston a good part of my adult life. know the, 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 yes. the territory very well. And um, it, the, the plug came out, okay? I, I really didn't know who I was, where I was. And I remember my mom teaching me, who died of Alzheimer's, to to um, keep asking questions, to stay at it until until you you know. And I, I, I Catherine, I, I didn't want to pull over because if I did, I would have been lost. And that's the worst feeling in Alzheimer's. It reinforces that feeling of being lost. I could control the car, so I kept driving, figuring the plug was going to go back in. The synapse would click, and uh, this was midnight. It wasn't until about 2 o'clock in the morning when I was outside Providence, Rhode Island, heading south from Boston, I realized where I was. At that point, I had to turn around. If anyone knows the Boston-Providence-Cape Cod loop, I had to turn around and drive an hour and 45 minutes back to Cape Cod. I do know that loop. I was just there this weekend. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Where? I was in Providence. Oh, good. It's a yeah. nice place. It is, yeah, at a concert. But anyway, yeah, so, but, but is it, I, I keep going back to this because I really want to get into the, the feelings. And um, I think in the book you talk about the denial of not wanting to admit that you have Alzheimer's or not wanting to admit it to anybody else either. And, and you mentioned the word, it's like outing yourself with the disease. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, you, that's the first, put it this way. Um, you're in denial yourself while you're trying to get to understand as, as, 
It's called the new me today in a lot of different ways. Well, in Alzheimer's, it really is the new you. And, uh, and, and, and then after that, because people just think of the stereotype of Alzheimer's as the end stage, no, nobody wants to, to go there with it because that they, 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 they want it. It's what I call a drive-by diagnosis. It's almost like uh, the, the person who's mute says, do I look like I'm deaf, you know? And, uh, you know, does someone, uh, you know, I also, I got cancer and Alzheimer's. If you saw me, I'm, I'm a fit guy in my early 60s, and do I look like I got cancer and Alzheimer's? No. Did, did Robin Williams look like he was depressed? No. But, but, but we all like to, to do the drive-by, and that's very frustrating for people with these horrific symptoms. Uh, uh, if I could just digress for a second and then pull me back. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the rage uh, is uh, moving from the denial. Rage is probably the next step. When when you accept it, and maybe others around you don't want to accept it, uh, and I think a lot of reasons is that Alzheimer's is a form of dementia, the most common form. Dementia makes people think of a demon howling in the desert. Who, who the hell would want to go there? And uh, so we we're okay about cancer. Uh, we're, I mean, uh, I shouldn't say that. We're okay talking about it, although years ago... We weren't the, okay talking about it yeah. 40 years. Yeah. It was the big C. And, it was the big and, C, exactly. And, and we're doing a tremendous work, breast cancer and, and, and lung cancer and, and, and all this, and, you know, with AIDS and, and, and all these ALS. You know, I don't want a single penny less spent on those uh, uh, diseases in terms of cure and care. But Alzheimer's, as you pointed out, We'll wipe out. We'll wipe out the baby boomers. Um, I have prostate cancer, and I have chosen not to treat it. Talking with my doctors and my family, because there is no cure for this right now, and uh, I don't want. I I saw firsthand what it was like seeing my mother in a nursing home, and I don't want to put my children and my wife and my friends through that. And I've made that decision, and my doctors are, are in agreement with me. They agree. So you were diagnosed, I think, either I read it in the book or you told me before the show, what, two weeks after you were diagnosed with Alzheimer's, then you were diagnosed with prostate cancer. Yeah, uh, Alzheimer's first and prostate cancer. And so I said um, I could go into the pity party. I could shake my fist at God, both of which I did. And I have a strong traditional faith, and that faith is as strong as ever. Or I could go and maybe do something positive. As I said, I'm, I'm Irish, and the Irish never get mad. We get even. I could try to get even with Alzheimer's. And so over a couple of years, I, I took a of a reporter and uh, um, ended up with close to a 1,000 pages of notes, uh, journals. And uh, from that, working with a couple of New York Times bestselling writers who are friends of mine, I, uh, I wrote on Pluto Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's, which, by the way, has just been recently released. The, probably the best way to get it right now, if someone wants to get it, is through Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. So, yeah so that, that is, I'm glad you mentioned that. Amazon, that's where, because it has just been released, so that's where you can buy the book. But, okay, Greg, you're talking about outing yourself, because I want to stick to that a little sure. bit, because that is the issue of denial and, and not wanting to talk about Alzheimer's and not wanting to tell your family that, or to discuss it with your family. And in the book, you talk about that conversation with your oldest son when you told him that you had the disease. Um, and that, that how difficult that was or it was. Um, so can we, you know, sure. 
Yeah. That, that was uh, one of the most powerful moments of my life, and I think in, in, in the lives of many people. When um, I have three children, Brendan, Colleen, and Connor, and my oldest boy, <clears throat> I had a conversation uh, with him and said, hey, you got to take over, man. You, 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 you're going to be my power of attorney. If something uh, uh, happens to your mother and something goes south, you're, you're the guardian. And uh, he didn't want to hear about it uh, for reasons we just talked about. It's emotional. And we're at a family uh, weekend, which is wonderful, in Coronado out in San Diego, which is a beautiful place. And uh, we're at a, a, a resort. Uh, and, and it was my son and I got there a day earlier, and we're overlooking a balcony. It looked like the Garden of Eden um, before the fall, and uh, the palm trees and, and tropical plants and um, that that uh, breeze off the ocean. And uh, and and you know, I was talking to him about the diagnosis, and he you know was using a lot of expos that I can't use here, but, but you know, he, he would say expletive, 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 this is just expletive. And, um, and I said, no, Brendan, this is real. And, um, and then I went and I got 30, 40 pages of medical notes, and I made him read some of them. And, and then, then, then he goes, this is expletive, expletive, expletive. Now he's shouting so almost everyone in the whole place can hear him. It's, it's about 1130 at night. And then he grabs my medical records, and he rips them up and shreds them. And throws them off um, the uh, uh, the balcony and says, "This is blah 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 expletive." And then he says, "It's expletive because I know it's true." And um, so it was difficult to talk about. Excuse me. And then he buried his uh, um, his chest like a little boy in, in my shoulder and cried. Mm. And um, so it's a powerful moment. But the Lord does have a sense of humor, so. The next day, well, at first light, 4 o'clock in the morning, Catherine, I woke up and said, oh, my God, my shredded medical records that basically say I'm losing my mind are, 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 are pasted all over paradise. So I grabbed a plastic trash bag, which was ironic, and I went down at 4 in the morning and started picking out my person, the, the shredding uh, shreds of my personal uh, uh, medical reports that went into all the brain scans, the spec scans, the clinical tests, all the results, and and uh, put them in a trash bag, a, 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 a plastic trash bag, which which was really my life, putting my life in a plastic trash bag, and I will never forget that moment. It's embedded. That's a moment that probably one of the last ones I'll I'll ever forget. Huh. That's quite a story. That's, uh, I guess the next question is, how is not only, it's Brendan, this was the oldest son that you were talking to. Right, he's 30 he's, now. He's, he's a writer-producer in Boston. So how are your, the, Brendan, your other two children, and your wife, how are they coping? Well, they're, they're all involved in the Alzheimer's cause. My daughter, Colleen, uh, who teaches uh, special needs in, the, in Baltimore, she was working in uh, um, uh, Washington, D.C. at the time. She was a communication analyst for Homeland Security for a, a, a corporation that's a, a consultant to Homeland Security. And um, she became uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, directors of the national, uh, or the chairman uh, for that year of the national uh, uh, walk to end Alzheimer's on, on the, the, the Capitol Mall. 
and she just emailed me this morning is doing a similar walk in Baltimore. And, so once, and, Greg, you outed yourself, I mean, you, and I guess I, I think other families need to hear this, once you were able to talk to your family, everybody was on board, and everybody, it sounds like, from what your son said, they knew it anyway. You feel it, even if yeah. you can't define it. Yeah, but, it, 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 that's what this country needs to do, Catherine. You, we've got to get on board on this. And um, it's no fun, uh, uh, if anyone reads my book on Pluto, it's no fun stripping yourself naked. I, I talk about things in there that people would be horrified. Uh, picking up a phone and, and, and not remembering how to dial and hurling it across the kitchen until it breaks in a million pieces. How do you think, uh, what do you, you know, worry about how I feel about my clients, my friends? Um, but, but, you know, and, and, and then picking up my sprinkler in the backyard and, and, and uh, not knowing how it works and getting so angry that I throw it against a tree. Um, but damn it, you know, I just said, this country's got to start talking about this. You know, I, I was right there, and I, I'm, you can see my, get my Irish up here. I was there when my mother died, and I, and I saw my grandfather when, when he passed away, and I said, you know, this is going to stop. We're going to start talking about this. And, 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 and if I have to strip myself naked to tell people it's okay to talk about it, uh, if, if you saw a picture of me, you could see I'm a pretty uh, normal-looking 64-year-old. And, well, I saw uh, a picture of you in your book, a handsome, you know, I guess you're about 60 with your family. I think there's yeah. a picture in the back of it, yeah. But, and and, and if, uh, what I'm saying, if, 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 the, what I'm trying to tell people is, hey, folks, this is the face of Alzheimer's. It's not... Uh, um, Someone, uh, uh, in, in, in which as sad as it is, 80 years, 90 years old in a nursing home. But that's yes. what everybody's afraid of. And I think, I, uh, you know, Alzheimer's is, and maybe you said, it's the defining disease of the baby boomer generation. Well, baby right. boomers don't want to look at, we have Alzheimer's, you're right. Okay, somebody's 80, 90 years old. Um, we can deal with that because we deal with all kinds of those kinds of issues in people with nursing homes. But not us, not me, but it is. Yeah. We are the face of Alzheimer's, right? And 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 nobody wants to go there. You you had asked before. There's a difference uh, between um, not knowing uh, where your car keys are and forgetting you have car keys. There's a difference between not remembering where you parked your car and not knowing that that you have a car. And uh, and as I write in the book, over time now. In the progression of the disease, it may take a while to get there. It doesn't happen overnight. But on Cape Cod, um, we, we bring our garbage to the dump. It's kind of a rite of passage, you know. And, and it's a social place, ironically. I often thought there would be restaurants there. And um, so I, I took, this was, uh, you know, in the last year or so, took my trash to the dump on a Saturday. And, and then I turned, the plug fell out. And I turned around and I said... Uh, Okay, how do I get home? So I could call my wife, Mary Catherine, or maybe one of the kids if they're around, or I'll know someone and I'll get a ride back. And all this is racing through my mind. Well, I drive a freaking yellow Jeep. It's sitting right in front of me. But the plug fell out, and my mind in Alzheimer's would not tell me that that car was my Jeep. Wow. And, and that's, 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 that's where you go with this thing. How is it? And then, and then the, the plug synapse kicked in, mm-hmm. and I realized, this, oh, well, I guess I do have a ride home. It's right there. Do you, uh, 
I mean, it's been what? It's been five years since you've been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Do you are you always every day or every week noting the progression of the disease? Are you writing it down? Do you? Yeah, I do. Right. It's it's a slow, but but there's some days, um, like I talked about before, where it, whether my wife or or a, a person that I've mentored, and I don't recognize them, and, and so you, you you can have a horrific event happen out of the blue. Um, uh, you know, maybe it's almost like because uh, uh, it is a battle. You're you're on a front line in 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 in, in the army somewhere fighting a battle, and and you're dealing with uh, uh, grenade attacks and sneak attacks, and you never know when it's going to happen. And so you, you you're uh, you got to be on guard, DEFCON, whatever it is, uh, at all times because you don't know when this thing is going to strike, and uh, it it is. Uh, debilitating um, but I want to move from because I just caught myself there I, I'm trying to give you uh, a, a, uh, um, a candid look at this and, and but at the same time I want anyone who's listening to realize that in faith, humor, and hope you can fight this, you can learn to live with it this book is not about dying with Alzheimer's, it's, it's about living with Alzheimer's the death part comes later you just have to get used to the fact that there are going to be some things, the plug is going to fall out, and you've got to stay w- within yourself and have faith. All the more reason to talk to people around you so you have that support system. You talked about in the book, and we only have three minutes left, but uh, a group that I think you belong to, or at least initially, doctors and lawyers and business people and writers who are right. part of that group, and yeah. Um, and are those kinds of groups available across the country? Oh, they're country? available. You know, I would recommend that anyone reach out to their Alzheimer's Association. Um, and they're wonderful uh, support groups throughout Alzheimer's Association. Also, stay tuned to some of the wonderful research um, that's being done. Uh, Cure Alzheimer's in Boston. Dr. Rudy Tanzi of Harvard uh, just... Uh, um, was uh, you know came out with with some significant uh, uh, research, uh, but we're still a long way away. But but you, you need that that support system, and and um, if we don't start to talk about it, there won't be a support system because people will be suffering quietly. And um, the the book the, this book is you know, I know we're running out of time. It, it it's it's a book about hope. If people read it, and again the best place is Amazon probably right now, although it'll be in bookstores. Um, you, you're gonna, you, you're gonna, uh, you're gonna laugh. You're gonna cry. You're gonna have hope, and and you're gonna realize that with support around you, um, we can learn to live for a period of time. And at the end of the day, um, uh, anyone who doesn't uh, think they're gonna die someday, any people who are listening here, please raise your right hand. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming you and me and any of your listeners, our hands are by our side. So. Yeah. Well, it's uh, not that we're not, we're all going to die, but it's how we die, what, the journey that we take, right? And yeah, and, and, and the blessing, and maybe it's not, it's a wrong use of word, is I know, and others with Alzheimer's know, the ending of the book before we read it. Greg, one more thing you talk about, you say, you know, the mind may be falling apart, but the spirit prevails, and the spirit's different than all that cognitive stuff. Right, I, I feel the spirit, your soul, uh, is and, and again, I come, I'm not here to proselytize. I, I but I have a strong faith. Uh, you know, was raised 
Catholic. I'm more evangelical Catholic, but I tell people don't tell my relatives in Dublin because they'd stone me. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, your soul survives forever. It lives forever, uh, and it's the essence of who we are. So I've learned to, uh, over time, to speak and write from my heart and my soul rather than my head, because I don't trust my head anymore. It used to be my best friend, my brain, and now I don't see any chance for reconciliation. Well, Greg, we appreciate you doing that on the show today, and and, um, it has been great talking to you and having this conversation on Pluto Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's, and as Greg said, you can buy the book at, on uh, Amazon right now. And uh, congratulations, because as you said, the book is doing great. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is integrative family physician Alex Zephyrus, MD and MS. Uh, Dr. Zephyrus uh, is a medical doctor who specializes in opiate recovery, and she has 
created a website, recoverysuperstar.com, which applies the latest advances in neuroplasticity and integrative mental health and a self-directed private program to help people with opiate addiction. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Now I'm going to call you Alex, doctor. That's fine. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so recoverysuperstar.com. Uh, do we first want to talk about the incidence of opiate addiction and addiction in the United States, which I guess is on the rise, unfortunately. It's getting worse, not better, that uh, over the past three decades, as I understand it, or um, drug overdoses have tripled in the United States? That's right. It's been an epidemic for years now, particularly what we're focusing on is prescription drug abuse uh, and prescription drugs like, uh, that fall under the class of opiates. Things like Vicodin, Norco, morphine, um, Percocet, Oxycodone, those are all opiates. These are all commonly obtained from your physician if you have severe pain, and they are being prescribed in very high numbers. Uh, heroin is also in this category. Uh, but the problem is these medicines um, are very addicting, and we didn't really realize as physicians you know, how addicting they were. Uh, we thought they were sort of innocuous and safe, and they came out in the mid-late 90s, and their um, you know, pain as a fifth vital sign, I got taught in medical school to assess and treat patients' pain aggressively. And as doctors, we thought we were doing a good job, but unfortunately, uh, you know, there, there's many people who use these medications appropriately, and can just take one or two a day as prescribed by their doctor. But unfortunately, there's a subset of people who a fair amount of, it's a fair amount of people, it's estimated between 2.5 million up to 7 million Americans take these medicines in a, not, in a way that's not prescribed by their physician. So that's between 1 and 45 Americans, 1 in 165 Americans. So that means you, you know somebody who's in this situation. You may just not know that, know that they No, I are. know many people are in that situation, unfortunately. Yeah. Colleagues and relatives and kids of friends of mine. So, uh, But you, I want to backtrack a little because you said, well, you know, as physicians in medical school, we were taught to treat pain aggressively. But yeah. it has been, let's say, I mean, I don't know how long it's been since you've been in medical school, but we'll say 20 years. or yeah. Okay, so... So doctors now do know that these drugs are addictive, but in my experience, um, both as a social worker and just as, in the, you know, as a layperson, they still continue to prescribe drugs um, and, you know, for pain aggressively. And, and they don't, so can we talk about that? It's a problem. Yeah, uh, it's a problem because doctors have partially created physical dependence and in many cases addiction, and treatment options are limited. I prescribe a medication called uh, buprenorphine, sold under the brand name Suboxone. There's also a medication called Naltrexone. There's a third medication, um, Methadone, that people are probably more familiar with, and those are the three FDA-approved treatments for opiate addiction. The problem is uh, access to treatment and, aware- and knowledge of treatment is still very limited. Um, there aren't, there are, any primary care doctor like myself can become certified to prescribe buprenorphine in their office. And I will tell you, it has liberated me since being able to start treating addiction because as doctors, we recognize it. Our antenna go up, oh, this patient's quote-unquote drug-seeking. And, you know, you, you get uncomfortable as a physician because you feel stuck because you now know that this person has this problem. They have real pain in many, many cases, and you feel obligated to treat it. But 
um, you know that this isn't really the best option for this patient long-term. And so being a doctor who prescribes an, a treatment that also helps for pain has been liberating, I will tell you. And I wish that more doctors would be willing to start prescribing this medication because it's an FDA-approved treatment, and it will, within a few days, dramatically change patients' lives in the vast majority of cases. And so part of the reason I'm you know, interviewing with you today and why I'm doing the work that I'm doing is to start to change some of the stigma, um, normalizing that this is, addiction is a problem uh, and that it's very common and that treatment is available and that there are newer approaches, which is what I've been doing with my patients, to really start to help the brain repair at a, at a deeper level rather than just substituting one treatment for another. Let's talk about the demographics of those yeah. who are addicted because that's changed, or at least I don't know if it's just the perception that has changed or that has really changed because now uh, you've got kids, middle-class kids who are addicted before perhaps, you know, I'm, I'm going back 20 years, it was kids in inner cities, there were other who were, had addiction problems, but now it's, it's reached the suburbs and uh, the middle class, and so does that change things in terms of admitting that there's a problem or getting treatment? Yes. So, um, you know, it used to be the stereotype of the sort of, you know, who would get addicted to opiates was the heroin junkie on the corner, right? But we're talking about prescription painkillers. So who takes prescription painkillers? You just told me you knew friends and colleagues and, uh, you know, kids and all sorts of people. So it's anyone who has chronic pain is at risk of becoming dependent on them and then addicted to them. So, you know, that 18-year-old who gets wisdom teeth surgery is going to be given a prescription for Vicodin. And some percentage of those kids are going to take them and they're going to feel great, the best they've ever felt. Um, you know, how many people have ever had surgery where they have pain pills in the house left over or they have very severe back pain and they have pain pills in the house. So over half of the people who start taking these medications get them for free from a friend or family member, from, usually from the medicine cabinet. So the first thing that I think about is, okay, let's get these drugs out of our houses. You know, if you're not using them actively, then get them out of your house safely, which means putting them in kitty litter or mixing them with um, coffee grounds and making a slurry and putting it in your garbage, not down the toilet. We don't need it in our water supply. But to get them out of your cabinet because 12 to 18-year-olds are want to experiment. That is the nature of their brain, unfortunately. The go system on their brain is is way overactive compared to the stop system. And that neurological pathway doesn't really fully form until they're in their mid-20s. And so teenagers are, are apt to experiment. You know, the, the thing is, you know, there's some pills in the cabinet, maybe some Xanax, maybe some Vicodin, you know, and these kids will often, you know, be hanging out, drinking beer, whatever they're doing, alcohol, and pop a couple of pills. And it's a recreational thing. And most kids say they start taking... Um, prescription drugs to deal with stress. I mean, our kids these days are, you know, growing up in a very different world than you and I did, and um, they have a lot of stress and pressure on them, and it makes it very challenging. So part of it is access, and then part of it is, you know, if you can limit their access until they're older. You know, 90% of people who become addicted to these medicines start when they're 12 to 18. So it's that window that we want to try to protect people from. And, you know, we have a society now where we're used to taking uh, prescription pills. You know, we, they have this allure of safety. You know, they're made by a pharmaceutical company. They come from a doctor. They have this perceived safety just by that very nature, you know, as opposed to taking heroin, which, you know, still seems dangerous, you know, to a lot of people because you don't know what it is. But the pills seem safe. Um, and so it gives people a false sense of security. 
and we have a society that's used to taking a pill for our solving our problems, it's used to well, taking an antibiotic every time we're sick. So we sort of have, unfortunately, created a generation that is comfortable taking pills, and this is part of, part of the problem as well. Yeah, I think we have to we have to change the culture, don't we? I mean, we have to. You're talking about. Uh, we'll take physicians, for instance. I mean, you're involved. Uh, the Recovery Superstar program involves integrative medicine. Uh, you have to have an alternative to taking those drugs. If, if somebody comes into your office as a physician, let's say, and they're in pain or they've had surgery or whatever the pain, or chronic pain is the aging population, but doesn't you have to have something else in that toolbox besides take a pill? And that has and and it, you, sometimes that it takes longer. It's not instantaneous in terms of getting rid of the pain, but doesn't that have to be a part of the whole system? Otherwise. It's just easier to go, and it's easier for the physician to say, okay, take Xanax, take this, and send them on their way, the patient. Exactly. Yeah. And when patients get in this situation, the vast majority don't want to be given another pill because they saw where that got them. I have a son who had, this was a few years ago, he had surgery, you know, surgery on his arm from a ski accident, and boy, they... They gave him, I forgot what it was, it was a very strong uh, painkiller, and he refused to take it. I mean, he took mm-hmm. some aspirin, and he got through the few days that were the most painful, and that was it. Yeah. But the push, really, from the physician and the staff was that he should take this medication, which he did not do. It's a fine line, you know. If yeah. somebody has real pain, and it's preventing them from sleeping, and they had, you know, surgery, you know, it's appropriate. Um, the problem is there's some people whose ba- brains are primed for it from a genetic point of view. Over 50% of addiction comes from a genetic predisposition, alcoholism or some other addiction, you know, in your parents or grandparents. And so, you know, some people are primed for it. Other people, other risk factors are a history of depression, anxiety, mental health problems, ADD. These sorts of things kind of predispose uh, predispose us, and some of us are at increased risk, and I think it's really, uh, it's wise to treat these medicines with respect and to not overuse them, and it's a slippery slope. No one intends to become addicted. We're not blaming the victim. Nobody intends to get this problem. I don't wish it on anybody, Uh, but there are solutions, and that's, that's part of what we want people to start to hear. Yeah, I think it's important. I think another thing that you said, I kind of re- want to reiterate, because the label, you know, if you hear heroin, oh, I'm not going to take heroin, but I'm not taking heroin. I'm just taking a prescribed medication. It's prescribed my, by my physician. I can get it at the pharmacy. So how can I be an addict? Right. Right. But uh, when yeah. people finally show up in my office, um, they are, uh, admi- they've admitted that they have a problem, that now their life is now, and they're not in control over their um, over their using. Now their marriage may be falling apart. Uh, they may, may have lost their children. They may be, you know, in de- danger of losing their job. They may have been passed up for a promotion. They may have just bought heroin for the first time on the street and they're totally freaked out, you know, and then people show up. And then we, ta- we start treatment. What about the statistics that doctors are the biggest abusers of drugs in this country because they have access to them? We have access. We're definitely at risk. Um, we just had a physician here in Northern California whose practice closed because he got arrested and he was a, uh, an addiction specialist, and now I have some of his patients. So it's a big problem. You know, we're not immune. Nobody is immune. So let's talk about recoverysuperstar.com. When did you start it and how does it work specifically? It came out of my work with my patients over the last three to five years. My background's in integrative medicine. 
Um, it, my, I started out going to medical school with the idea that I didn't want to just be a doctor who was giving prescription pills to patients, and that I wanted to try to figure out how to help people actually lead healthier lives. And so I came, from, came into medicine with that point of view, and that's been my kind of orientation, if you will. I also finished a two-year fellowship in integrative medicine with Dr. Andrew Weil in Tucson, and that filled in some other um, knowledge for me. And, and so I've been doing this for a while now, and what became clear to me when I started treating these addiction patients is the work that I had been doing with patients around depression, anxiety, um, trying to not g- give people um, antidepressants. Uh, in many cases, they had been on them and they didn't work or they wanted to try to get off of them. And they were very amenable to this more integrative approach about how do we actually help your brain chemistry get back in balance? What does your brain actually need to be fed? And I found that the vast majority of my patients who I was now treating for addiction had those same issues. They had depression, they had anxiety, they couldn't sleep, and they also weren't in a hurry to start taking another pill. And so they were very motivated. You know, we, I get them often, often I'll end up prescribing medication called buprenorphine, which is um, the opiate replacement medicine that I mentioned before, and it helps the dust settle and it lets them get off the roller coaster of addiction. And um, in many cases, their cravings go away. But, you know, again, that's just one solution. That's just one part of the solution using that medication. And in many cases, the patients eventually want to be able to get off that medication, but they don't know how. And so that's where helping the brain get, start to heal and recover now that the um, kind of daily using is, uh, is, you know, out of the picture um, becomes really amenable. So, you know, it's teaching people the basics of how their brain works, that their brain has structurally changed as a result of using. And uh, it can change back. We know that the brain has this concept called plasticity, a neuroplasticity, the ability to change and recover, which is phenomenal, and we can take advantage of that. And so we know that food can be medicine. You know, I can tell you that the vast majority of my patients um, don't eat breakfast and have a sugar-based diet focusing on processed food. That is not going to feed your brain. You know, your brain needs um, amino acids. Those come from protein in your diet. Those amino acids get broken down to reform to make serotonin and endorphin and epinephrine. These are the chemicals that your brain needs to feel happy and calm and focused. And so those come from food first. So, you know... First is education and letting people know that they can actually start to help themselves feel better. Their mood is going to follow their blood sugar. And so people don't learn this. You know, unfortunately, you go to many AA meetings and it's filled with donuts and coffee. You know, it's like these foods aren't, it's just substituting one thing for the other. And, you know, uh, it's a process. We start where you are and um, we just try to crowd out some of the uh, less healthier foods with some of the healthier foods. And, you know, people are amazed, you know, just by starting to eat breakfast in the morning, um, how much better they start to feel. We're talking to Dr. Alex Sathiris, and uh, she is the creator of Recovery of Superstar. Um, doctor, okay, but education, obviously, it's a process, it's an evolution. I mean, I'm hearing and listening to you, and I'm thinking, so why isn't everybody doing, why isn't everybody embracing recoverysuperstar.com? I mean, what's your success rate? I mean, you hear about all these clinics all over the country, and as I said before, I have friends, colleagues who have sent their you know, the, pop, the kid, their children who are, who you describe as the pop, you know, kids in their early 20s who can't get off drugs, these prescribed medications, it doesn't seem to work for them. And even when they get, uh, that was my next question or my second question, 
families involved? You know, they try to get the families involved or they should be involved. So two questions for you. What's your success rate? Why isn't everybody flocking to you? Because they should, as you're describing it. And um, is it a whole, you know, do you involve not just the individual but the entire family? Yeah. I do find that... um the uh, sometimes teenagers, um, you know, teenagers are sort of a special breed in themselves. Um, they often take longer to realize that they have a problem. Um, you know, there's still this sort of invincibility. I will tell you that probably I have the best success rate with people in their 20s, 30s, people who've been struggling for longer, um, people who are um, finally realizing that they actually need to start changing their lives in these more significant ways. Um, and I do have a lot of success with my patients in eventually getting them off this medication and at least avoiding relapse when they're um, in treatment. Um, I find that people are very amenable to this kind of approach uh, for the reasons you know, that they don't necessarily, they want to be healthy. You know, people, I find, you know, in medicine, it's very hard to find a group of people, a group of patients, you know, who are very motivated. And I find that particularly the patients who end up finding their way to me, you know, they're looking for other ways because uh, the previous approaches they've tried um, often haven't worked. So do you get people, you say they haven't worked, so do you, will you, your patients are coming from, say, Years of trying to get off the drugs, trying yes. different programs, and finally they get to you? Yes. yes. Maybe it should be reversed. They should go to you first. That would be nice, but, you know, <laughs> that's why I'm, I'm out here trying to do my part. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, recoverysuperstar.com, uh, do you do, am I, do understand that you also, some of the work that you do is online? Yeah. So, the, so basically I found that, you know, there's only so much that I can do one-on-one in the office in these short office visits that we have and that there was a whole lot more that people wanted and needed and there was a whole lot more that I could share. And so I put the program online also because there's only a certain number of people that I can see, you know, each week in the office. So I wanted to make this more accessible to people. And so that was the reason I put it online. And, you know, I'm in San Francisco. Um, we, we use online for everything. We use technology to, you know, connect and to learn and, and whenever we have a question. So to me, it seemed like the natural platform, you know, for, for our generation these days. The vast majority of people have access to the Internet. Um, so, you know, I, I put it up, it's up there as a program that people can go through on their own, and we periodically have group classes that will run kind of as a larger class. Um, there's workshops, I'm sorry, there's worksheets, there's self-assessment tools, and it's really, it holds your hand to go through this process of really starting to understand how your brain works, what are your vulnerabilities, what are your triggers, what can you start to do about it each week. Um, they learn. Um, there's a short video that's a practical skill or tool that someone can do in the moment to break anxiety, to break drug cravings. And they're simple, um, often movement-based activities, which bring in um, their movement-based mindfulness. So, you know, most of us feel like we can't sit and meditate. So I kind of go through the back door. And instead of trying to encourage someone to sit and meditate, there's many, many things that you can do that involve movement that is a way to engage the sort of relaxation part of your brain. So um, I really try to pick the highest yield activities that I found and the skills and tools that I found working one-on-one with my patients and put them in a format that makes it accessible to, to everybody else. Yeah, accessibility keeps ringing in my ears because you, it's accessible anytime then because yes. if you can go online, not just for you, and I keep going back, but also family members who are involved and uh, as well, they have access to the, to the same information. Right. Yeah, and it really, you know, if you, um, 
you know, especially if you're living with your, usually the parents, you know, if someone's living with their parents, the parents are motivated and it's, it's great to get them involved in treatment and involved in um, being part of the solution. Um, so if it's, it's also less costly. The more people that are on board, the better. Yeah, the more people on board, the better. And it's, it's not, it doesn't, you don't have to go to a place that costs money to do that. To, you know, um, if you have to go to a, a facility that may be close to where you are or not, or not close to where you are. So you have accessibility in terms of money, in terms of time. Um, it's a great, yeah. is anybody, yeah, this is a, it's, to, to me it sounds like a, a great, uh, Solution, I guess, is what Thank I would you. say. Yeah, it's meant yeah. to be. It's meant to be, you know, sort of that next level of education and support. Um, you know, for somebody who maybe was taking pills and they were able to taper off, and now they're um, now they're off, but they're still having cravings and they don't want to go back. And I get I got an email the other day from a woman who was pregnant, and so she was like, I, I stopped because using because I was pregnant, but I'm really afraid of what's going to happen when my kid comes. And, um, you know, with the stress of that and, you know, then she won't have the pregnancy, they're stopping her. And so it's also, a, I, you know, I designed it also for people who um, are off but don't want to relapse because the relapse rate is very high. You know, if you've used for a substantial period of time, your brain has structurally changed and it will take time for it to heal depending on how long you used for, you know, one year, two years. And so we want to try to take, you know, in that window of time when someone's not actively using, um, try and teach them and give them the skills, tools, and resources so that they can have, um, you know, longer-term sobriety and, you know, get their life back. So what happens, for instance, like you've got somebody, you have a kid who's been doing this since high school and college and even graduate school, so you might have, you know, 10 or 15 years of uses. Can your yeah. brain restructure itself? That you can. Yeah, it can. Yeah. It takes time. It can. And, you know, I, the way I talk about it with patients and on the courses, it's about becoming an expert in yourself. You know, you have to know yourself uh, and your weaknesses, your Achilles heels better than anybody because um, you're, you're, you know, you're your sort of worst enemy. You know, you're going to know what is it that trips you up. And if you do trip up, you know, it's not a time to be harsh on yourself or judge yourself. It's a time to like, okay, re-strategize. Okay, why, okay, why, did, I, why did I use or why, did I, why am I thinking about using right now? Sometimes it's a boredom thing. Sometimes it's I want to celebrate, you know, something good happened and I want to party. I, want to, I deserve a reward. Sometimes it's I'm so stressed out this terrible thing happened. Somebody died. You know, I lost my job and, you know, I'm, it's the effort. You know, I'm going to go out and, and do this. So, you know, it's, it's knowing what is it that trips you up and becoming an expert in that. And so part of what I have in the course is ways for you to start to kind of look at yourself a little bit and reflect about what is it that is your unique kind of situation that makes that that you need to become an expert in so that you can um, avoid it in the future. Know thyself. Know thyself, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we only have a minute left, so I probably shouldn't even ask you this question because I have been just finished the series of watching Nurse Jackie, which is... Oh, yeah. Just a couple words. Comment on that. How realistic is that? It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's in it. I haven't seen the late, latest episodes of it, but she, uh, you know, she's gone to treatment, I know, and she's trying to work it out. It's not easy. Um, there's a lot of secrecy. There's a lot of hiding. There's a lot of shame. Yeah, and I think so, that's what that, yeah, it's kind of what we've been talking about. But uh, great having you on the show today. We've got 30 seconds left. But uh, recoverysuperstar.com is the website, Dr. Alice Alex Zafiris. And uh, just go to the website, and uh, anybody who uh, has a problem or knows somebody who 
may need help or more information, that's the website to go to. Is there any other one that we should know about that's related to what you're doing? That's the main one. I'm putting everything on there. And if anyone has any questions or specific comments, feel free to email me. You can reach me directly through there. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 